Welcome to this Upula audio presentation of The Rocket's Shadow by John Blaine, Volume 2. Chapter 3, The Marines Have Landed. Rick slammed the brakes to the floor and the old car bucked to a stop scarcely ten feet from the gray car. Ahead, the doors of the sedan opened and three men got out. One of them, a squat, flat-nosed man in a derby, came up and said crisply, Okay, kid, get out. Rick obeyed, heart pounding. As he stepped to the ground, the other two moved closer to him. One was the bearded man. The other was thick-set, with long arms and a short neck of a wrestler. He wore a sports jacket of bright-colored checks and a battered felt hat. His eyes were close-set and of a strange, glassy hardness. The bearded man confronted Rick. Young man, you've been following us for miles. My friends and I demand to know why. The question put Rick on the defensive. He stammered, Why, I... that is, I... Out with it, kid, the man in the derby growled. Why, you've been shacking us all over the country. Rick put on a bold front, concealing the trembling of his knees. These men looked capable of anything. Even the bearded man, in spite of an almost scholarly appearance, had a thin-lipped mouth that was held in a firm slit. You've been buying up all the triode tubes in the area, he finally said. I need one badly. Could I buy one? The man in the sports coat pushed his face close to Rick's. We're collecting them, and we don't want to sell, see? Rick swallowed. I just thought it was strange. How could you use that many tubes? We use them to trim Christmas trees, the man in the derby growled. Got anything to say about that? The three men had been moving gradually closer to him until now he was trapped against the jalopy. He looked from one face to the other and a wave of cold fear came over him. These men were dangerous. He could see it in the wicked gleam of their eyes, in the cruelty of the bearded man's thin lips. If he could just get away into the woods. There was a space of about five feet between the bearded man and the one in the sports coat. Rick lunged for it, his legs driving hard. The man in the sports coat grabbed his sleeve and pulled him off balance and swung him around. Rick brought his foot up in a vicious arc that smashed against the man's thigh muscle. The man let out a cry of agony and rolled on the hard macadam, grabbing at his knee. But the kick had thrown Rick off balance. As he teetered wildly, the man in the derby hit him from behind. Two long arms closed in a circular vice around his chest and lifted him from the ground. The bearded man stepped forward with a raised fist, his thin lips drawn back from his teeth. Both of Rick's arms were pinioned, and there was only one thing to do. He threw his head back sharply into his captor's face. There was a muffled grunt, and he felt the arms loosen. He tore himself loose and whirled just in time to see a fist streaking toward his face. He ducked, but too late. His knees buckled as the fist smashed into his forehead. He staggered back and fought to keep his balance. But the bearded man stuck out a leg and neatly kicked his feet out from under him. Before he could get up, the man in the derby had leapt onto his chest, crushing the breath from him. Rick looked up dizzily into the face of his opponent. Suddenly, the face was jerked away from him by a lean brown hand. Two things happened simultaneously, unbelievably. 
A strong fist smashed the derby down over the man's eyes, while a side punch with the open hand caught the man under the chin. He crashed to the road. Rick jerked to his feet. He caught a glimpse of a flashing smile in a forest green marine uniform as he heard the stranger shout, Watch it! The bearded man and the one in the sports coat were advancing toward the two boys with arms extended, their faces set in hard, vicious lines. Rick took an uncertain step backwards, but the Marine's hand lanced forward into the bearded man's midriff. The man doubled forward. The man in the sports coat launched himself in a flying tackle. With a quick, dancing step, the Marine dodged. Rick saw his rescuer's arm chopped down, aiming the outside edge of his hand like a blade. It landed just where the man's thick neck connected with his shoulders, and he dived to the road. Let's get out of here, the Marine shouted. He grabbed Rick, who stared at him, dumbstruck with the quickness of it. The boys legged it down the road. Now Rick knew a thing or two about running, but the ground-eating pace of the Marine made him step up his stride to a hard sprint. They ran all out for a minute, throwing glances over their shoulders. The three men had picked themselves up and were staring after the two boys. In here, the Marine motioned. He led the way off the road into the woods. I don't think they'll try to follow us. Through the trees, they saw the men get into the sedan and drive off, leaving the highway empty except for the airport car. Rick let out a sigh of relief. They've gone. He turned to his rescuer with a forced grin. The Marine was a husky boy, maybe an inch taller than Rick. His hair under the green overseas cap was black. His eyes were brown, set in a tanned, friendly face. His green uniform had a red sergeant's chevrons on both sleeves, and there was a double row of ribbons over the left pocket. A small pack was slung over his shoulders. You certainly saved my bacon, Rick said soberly. He held out his hand. Thanks. The young Marine, he looked scarcely old enough to be in uniform, took Rick's hand in a firm grip. His ready smile flashed. No strain. It was a good fight while it lasted, he added. My name's Don Scott. Scotty for short. Mine's Rick Brandt. What did you do? I never saw anything happen so fast. Karate punches, Scotty said. I learned them in the Marines. He looked at Rick speculatively. What was that all about, anyway? Rick didn't know how to answer, so he countered with a question of his own. Where did you drop from? You passed me, Scotty said. I was hiking along when you sailed by. I saw you stop just up the road. Just as I was going by, the fight started, so I took a hand. Three against one didn't look so good. If you hadn't... Rick leaned against a sapling, his knees still a bit unsteady. Where are you heading? Scotty shrugged. Nowhere special. I'm looking for a job. I got discharged in Washington two days ago, so I'm headed for New York, hitchhiking. I thought maybe I could find something to do in the city. Is your home in New York? Don't have a home, Scotty replied cheerfully. The only relative I had was my grandma. She passed away while I was overseas. An idea took form in Rick's head. Come home with me, Scotty, he suggested. I'll bet my father can find a job for you. Scotty hesitated. Look, I'm not asking any favors, 
just because I took a hand in that scrap. That has nothing to do with it. We'll go home and you can talk to Dad. You'll like him. He's regular. We'd better call the police first, hadn't we? No, not now, Rick evaded. I want to talk to Dad. They walked back and got into the jalopy. Rick headed it toward Whiteside. Your car? Scotty asked. I borrowed it. The assorted noises of the car made conversation difficult, and the boys fell silent until Rick turned down the road leading to the airport. You live far from here? Scotty asked. On an island. It's about 15 minutes away. By boat? By air. The Marine stared. By air? You mean there's an airline that flies to where you live? They topped the rise in front of the airport and the field spread before them. Rick pointed proudly to his cub. That's our airline. Scotty looked at him with new respect. You fly that? Rick nodded. The government had a program to teach kids to fly. It wasn't hard. Oh, and then your dad got you a plane? Huh, not in your life, Rick asserted vigorously. I worked that deal out myself. I formed a company and sold shares, and that gave me enough money to buy the cub. All the scientists chipped in. Now I pay them back by doing their errands and ferrying them around at reduced rates. Scotty was puzzled. What scientists? Oh, you'll see, Rick answered. He stopped the airport car in front of the hangar, warning Scotty with a glance not to mention the fight to Gus. Some can, he said to the mechanic. When are you going to turn it over to the Whiteside Museum and give those tires away? I had a flat. Gus shook his head sadly. Listen how he talks about my car. He has no respect for old age. Matt guessed at the cub, I think. You think? What a way to run an airport. I better take a look. Maybe you just think you put in a new oil gauge, too? Not on your life, replied Gus. I did that with my own lily-white hands. As Rick walked around the plane toward the cabin, he stopped suddenly. At the inspection port in the tail assembly, a tiny metal door was partly open. Hey, Gus, tell Mac to keep his eyes open, will ya? He left the inspection port open. He secured it and climbed in, a little angry. He didn't like people to be careless with his plane. Scotty got in beside him and they tightened their safety belts. Gus pulled the prop through and the engine caught it once. Rick waved his thanks and taxied to the end of the runway. In a moment they were in the air, climbing like a gull toward the sea and home. Rick kept a careful eye on the new oil pressure gauge until he saw that it read normally. He leveled off for the run to Spindrift. Chapter 4. Scotty Gets Himself a Job Rick flew due east until he picked up the old barn that was his regular landmark, and then banked in a lazy circle over it and set his course for Spindrift Island. He noted absently that a new advertising slogan had been painted on the barn's slanting roof. Smoke white cream. Do you fly a lot? Scotty asked. Every day during the summer, Rick answered. If the weather's good, I'm the island taxi and delivery service. In the winter, I fly to school and do the shopping on the way home. Well, what do you do the rest of the time? Well, sometimes I tinker with gadgets. Sometimes Dad lets me help out in the lab. I get a big kick out of that. What are these labs? I'll show them to you, 
Rick promised. But you can't talk about the experiments and stuff without Dad's okay. He pointed ahead to where Spindrift Island was coming over the horizon. That's home, he said. As they flew closer, Scotty asked, Is it actually an island? It looks to me as though it's connected with the main shore. It is at low tide, Rick admitted. The backside of the island is a tidal flat, all rocks. They're mostly underwater at high tide. The island was almost below now. Rick pointed out the house and laboratories, discreetly failing to mention the big rocket launcher in Pirate's Field. Then he pointed to the neat farm buildings on the island's cultivated north side. That's where we get our vegetables and milk, he told Scotty. The Huggins family runs the farm for us on shares. Scotty raised up in his seat and peered up over the nose. I was wondering where you were going to land this thing. The strip between the sea and the trees? That's right, Rick said. Shall I land right side up for a change? I don't mind, Scotty grinned. I've got more uses for this neck of mine later on. He watched Rick bag out to sea, losing altitude. Looks like a wonderful place to live. It is, Rick agreed. He wanted to say more, to tell Scotty how much fun it was and what good times the family had together, but it was hard to talk about anything so personal and important. He brought the cup around in a smooth 180-degree turn, lining up the nose with the grassy strip. The house flashed by, and then they were out over the grass. He held the plane off until it was sold out, and then he let it roll along to the place where his tie ropes were staked out. Home! he announced. Here's the welcoming committee. He pointed to Dismal, who was coming through the orchard as fast as his little legs could move. Scotty climbed out, laughing at the pup's ungainly way of running. Diz barked happily at Rick, wagging his tail until his whole body vibrated. He paid no attention to Scotty until his young master said, Say hello to Scotty, Dismal. The dog walked over, nose outstretched to sniff Scotty's waiting hand. He sat down and examined the hand thoughtfully while the Marine waited. He's deciding, Rick said. Dismal cocked his head and decided that Scotty was acceptable. He barked once and rolled over onto his back, all four legs in the air. That's his trick, Rick explained. The only one he knows. It means he likes you. Scotty laughed. A thoughtful dog with one trick. <laughs> That's really something. Rick led the way to the calm porch of the house. He was tempted to stop and show his newest gadget to Scotty, but he knew they should see his father at once. Hartson Brent was in his office, hard at work on a mathematical problem. He rose as the boys entered. Did you get that too, Brick? His eyes on Scotty were curious. No, Dad. Before the scientist could ask questions, Scotty was introduced. Welcome to Spindrift. Hartson Brandt said cordially. He shook Scotty's hand and motioned him to a chair, then faced his son. Uh, Rick, I think you'd better explain that bump on your head. He listened in silence as Rick told his story. Then he shook his head and said, That was foolish and a dangerous thing to do, chasing those men, son. You had no right. But they were buying up all the tryouts in Newark, Dad. I couldn't just let them get away with that. I'm afraid you were a little overzealous, Rick. He put a hand on the boy's shoulder. I appreciate your loyalty, son. However, I'm sure your suspicions are unfounded. And you can't blame the men in the sedan for getting angry, can you? 
They probably were on some perfectly innocent errand. But they bought at least two dozen triodes, Dad. They can't use that many. I think they could, Hartson Brandt said. Suppose they were making a full power pack for a high power transmitter. Wouldn't they use a large bank of triodes then? Um, I guess so, Rick admitted. He decided to let the thing drop. There was a chance that his father was right. Hartson Brandt turned to Scotty. Even if my son was mistaken, Scotty, I'm nonetheless grateful to you. You said you were just discharged from the Marines? That's right, sir. Do you have your discharge? Scotty produced a leather folder from inside his green blouse and handed it to the scientist. Hartson Brandt read the parchment carefully. Tarawa? Saipan? Okinawa? You've evidently seen a lot of action, son. Enough so that I don't want to see any more, Scotty said. I can understand that. According to your discharge, you enlisted at the age of 17? That's what it says, sir. Scotty nodded. He seemed suddenly ill at ease. Rick cast a sharp look at his father. Hartson Brandt smiled. That would make you just over 20. Somehow I don't think you're that old. Let's have it, son. Were you underage when you enlisted? Scotty turned pink. Yep, I was big for my age. The recruiting sergeant didn't ask too many questions. I had an idea it was something like that, Hartson Brandt said, smiling. Then after a pause, how would you like to work for me? Rick held his breath. I'd like nothing better, sir, but I don't know anything about science, Scotty said slowly. That's not necessary. I think we might use a guard until the experiment is over. At least you can keep inquisitive newspaper reporters away from the rocket launcher. The job is yours if you want it. Thank you, sir. I accept with pleasure. Fine. Rick will show you to a room. Tomorrow we'll talk about a salary and some civilian clothes for you. Rick grinned ear to ear, delighted that Scotty would not have to continue on his lonely way to New York. He'd taken a liking to the young Marine on sight. We'll have to do without that tryout until tomorrow, Rick, his father said. It'll be all right, I think. The new panel is almost assembled, so we haven't lost much time. A voice asked, Did I hear something about doing without the triode? They looked up as John Stringfellow came into the office. Rick introduced Scotty, whom the tall technician greeted cordially and then explained, I couldn't get a tube. I tried a half dozen places and they were all sold out. Well, that's odd, Stringfellow commented. Did you try Royal Electronics? No, Rick admitted. I'll see if they have any in stock, Stringfellow said. He glanced at his watch. Someone should still be there. He picked up the phone and asked for a Newark number. Rick heard him speak with Barbie and then heard her say, Here's your party. This is Spindrift Island, Stringfellow speaking. He gave the number of the tube and waited a moment while someone at the other end made a quick check. Presently, he said, Fine, we'd like three. Will you deliver them to the boat landing at Whiteside first thing in the morning? Thank you. He smiled at Rick. See, easy enough. I'll run over in one of the motorboats in the morning and pick them up. Hartson Brandt looked at his son as if to say, See, Rick, it wasn't a plot after all. The boy turned red under his tan and said, 
I'll show Scotty up to his room now. Upstairs, Scotty looked around. You mean this room is all mine? Sure. Is it okay? Okay. Scotty put his hand in the middle of the bed and tested the spring as though he couldn't believe it was real. After living in tents and barracks for so long, it's like a corner of heaven. My room's right through here, this connecting door. The bath is down the hall. Come on, I'll get you clean towels. In a few moments, they were cleaned up, only Rick's bruise showing evidence of the fight. They went downstairs to the big dining room. The Brants and the scientists had already gathered. Rick introduced Scotty to the people he hadn't met, noting Barbie's quick interest. Throughout the meal, Rick noticed Scotty's amazement at the good-natured banter that passed between the dignified-looking scientists. They only look formal, he told the Marine when they had finished dinner and retired to their rooms. They're really regular guys. As they entered Rick's room, Scotty stopped short, his glance taking in the weird assortment of gadgets. Come on in. I'll explain the place to you. You'll have to. What is it? An electrical museum? The Brant Hall of Electronic Science, Rick replied, and proceeded to show his new friend the arrangements he had made for what he called the simple, more comfortable life. Above the radiator was an intricately wired alarm clock. He set it and turned the hands ahead. As it went off, the window slid shut, the heat lever on the radiator flew into the on position, and the radiator turned on. Scotty looked impressed. Oh, that's nothing, Rick said. Sit down in that chair. He was proudest of all of the old leather chair he had rigged up. Along one arm was a row of buttons. The first controlled the reading lamp, a motor rheostat giving just the amount of light required for any purpose. The second turned on the radio. The third controlled the volume. The fourth gave a choice of five stations, depending on how many times it was depressed. Push the fifth button, Rick invited with a grin. Scotty gave a wary push. The back of the chair flopped down and a footrest shot into position. He recovered his balance with effort and found that the adjustment was perfect for reading in a stretched out position. Rick grinned at Scotty's look of awe. This is my workbench over here, he said. He pushed a catch and a wall shelf opened. It revealed a neat bench complete with soldering iron, coils of wire, jars of switches, and other parts. On one end was a small wooden box. Rick picked it up. This is something I'm working on now. Scotty examined it. Looks like the spark coil off of an old Model T Ford. That's just what it is. I want to rig it up so I can carry it in my belt with a couple of batteries. Then, when I turn on the juice and touch something, wow! Scotty scratched his head. What's the idea? You don't want to go around giving people shocks for fun, do you? Well, sometimes. The scientists get playful now and then. A few days ago, Professor Zircon saw me come into the lab, so he charged up a laden jar. That's a jar that stores electricity. He left it where I'd be sure to pick it up. It's a bad habit I have, always handling things. I grabbed the jar and, wow, I let out a yelp that could be heard in Europe. So I'm working on something to get back at him. Huh, nice place, Scotty grinned. I'd better wear rubber soles for insulation with all this electricity around here. He hesitated. Want to tell me what's happening here? I'm so curious I could bust a seam. 
Rick began tinkering with the spark coil. He could always talk better when his hands were busy. Well, I guess the best place to start is at the beginning. Scotty made himself comfortable in the gadget-controlled armchair. He usually is, he agreed. Before the war, Rick went on, Dad worked at the university as a professor of physics. There wasn't any laboratory here then, except for a little one where Dad tinkered with things. Then the government asked him to take over one phase of radar development. Radar? Scotty gave a low whistle. I've seen it work. Is that something? Well, anyway, they needed labs, so the government put up the money and built this one, and they asked Dad to get a staff together. They worked all during the war. The scientists decided they made a swell team. They wanted to stay together after the war, but the government decided to tear the lab down. The scientists were really sick about that, but... There wasn't anything they could do. Then came old John Stonerich. The millionaire? That's him. He's over 80, you know. He decided to parcel out some of his millions. He had a grant of $2 million set up for the electrical sciences. Only he put a few strings on it. Scotty was sitting upright. What kind of strings? The $2 million will be given to the group of scientists making the most important contribution to their special field within a single year. A year isn't much time for a really big development, you know. But Dad and the others decided to make a try for it anyway. They pooled all the money they had, borrowed more, and then they went to work. That was in July, last year. Well, then the year's almost up. Rick nodded. A little less than a week to go. But what's the thing they're working on? A rocket to the moon. Scotty sank back in the armchair and stared at him. It's big. It's the biggest thing since the atom bomb, I guess. And we're almost ready. Dad and the others are assembling the control units now. The rocket will be controlled by radar. But how will you know where it is once it takes off? Scotty objected. The radar scopes will tell us. Besides, there'll be a ton of explosive in the nose. When it hits the moon, there will be a blast big enough to be seen by a telescope. How about fuel? Scotty still looked disbelieving. That was a big problem, Rick admitted. Then Dr. Weiscarver, one of the scientists, developed a new fuel that's powerful enough to do the trick. He got some of the radioactive stuff left over from atom bomb manufacture and worked it out with that. You said about a dozen scientists. I've only met three. Well, the others are taking a vacation. Their part is done. They're not needed now. They'll all be back in a few days to be here when the rocket goes off. The place will be overrun with scientists, reporters, and gosh knows who else. I've really stepped into big doings, haven't I? Scotty said. Look, what happens if this thing doesn't work? It has to, Rick declared flatly. It just has to. Dad said it will, and so did the others. But if it doesn't? Scotty persisted. Then, Rick said slowly, the lab will be torn down. And the swellest, most wonderful gang of people in the world will have to break up and go back to teaching and stuff like that. But it can't miss, Scotty. You wait and see. If your dad and the others could help develop radar, they can do this. I'm convinced. Scotty rumpled his black hair thoughtfully. Look, Rick, I saw your face when you were talking to your father. You think those men were buying up the tubes to keep you from getting one, don't you? Yes, but how did they know you were going to Newark to get a tube? 
I'd like to know that, Rick replied soberly. Scotty walked to the window. It's raining, he said. Say, is that the lab over in back of the orchard? That's right. There's a light on in there. Well, probably Dad or one of the others working on the control panel. Want to go over? I can show you the lab. And how? I want to see this moon rocket. They went downstairs and into the warm darkness of the orchard. The rain was letting up, so they didn't need coats. Someone's in the radiation room, Rick said. His voice was loud in the darkness. As he spoke, the light went out. Then they heard a door slam, followed by the sound of running feet. Somebody's running away from there, Scotty exclaimed. He pulled a pencil flashlight from his pocket and shot the beam through the trees. For an instant, the moving light shone squarely into Rick's eyes, blinding him. Where? I can't see. Rick shielded his eyes and tried to catch a glimpse of the figure. Where'd he go? Come on. Scotty picked his way through the orchard to where the figure had vanished. There was no sign of anybody. Down this path, that's the shortest way. Rick, his night vision regained, struck off through the trees to where the dark bulk of the lab was dimly visible. Something white flickered in the air and swerved into full sight. It was luminous and it fluttered through the air like a blind ghost. It fell to the ground a short distance away, and jerked feebly and then lay still. Looks like a ghost, Scotty breathed. A ghost of a bird, then, Rick retorted, but the words hid his own sudden fright. They hurried to where the thing glowed against the ground in front of the laboratory. It stirred feebly, as though trying to rise again. The flashlight, Rick said. Then as Scotty shot the beam down, a horrified chill flashed through him. A bat, Scotty exclaimed. Look at it. Rick bent low over the luminous body and the chill turned his blood to ice. He let out a hoarse cry. We've got to get Dad. Come on, fast. We've got to get Dad. He took the light from Scotty's hand and shot it toward the house, blinking the beam on and off. What is it? Scotty asked. What's the matter? Look at it. Rick choked. The skin. It's melting right off, Scotty. The radiation shields are down. <laughs>